0: If you're just starting, it's important to learn enough to know what all these parameters should be for yourself before you go in and make a mistake.
1: Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals, the show that teaches you and other busy pros how to grow your wealth so you can live life on your own terms. I'm your host, Taylor Lode. Our guest today is Jeremy Roll. Jeremy started investing in real estate and businesses in 2002 and left the corporate world in 2007 to become a full-time passive cash flow investor. He is currently an investor in more than 70 opportunities across more than $1 billion worth of real estate and business assets. As founder and president of Roll Investment Group, Jeremy manages a group of over 1,000 investors who seek passive-slash-managed cash-flowing investments in real estate and business. Jeremy is also the co-founder of For Investors by Investors, a nonprofit organization that was launched in 2007 with the goal of facilitating networking and learning among real estate investors in a strict, no-sales pitch environment, which I'm a big fan of. Fibby is now the largest group of public real estate investor meetings in California with over 27,000 members. That's huge. Jeremy has an MBA from the Wharton School, is a licensed California real estate broker for investing purposes only, and is an advisor for Realty Mobile, the largest real estate crowdfunding website in the US. Jeremy welcomes emails, jroll at rollinvestments.com, to network or help with other investors to discuss real estate or business investments of any size. I've seen Jeremy speak at conferences. It's awesome. I learned a lot. Jeremy, thanks for
0: joining us today. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.
1: I'm super excited to talk to you. It's, it's always a pleasure. And I'd like to dive into something that I've heard you speak about before, which is vetting syndicators, vetting deal sponsors, vetting people that are bringing you investment opportunities. As someone, you know, yourself as a professional investor, You're clearly very good at that. So, you know, let's dive into that and talk about how you do that. Can you get us started and give us like the super basic overview of how you get started vetting a sponsor?
0: Yeah. So uh, thanks again for having me. So, you know, the first thing I want to say is I've been investing in these syndications now for over 17 years, full time for over 11. And, you know, I was um, talking to someone the other day and I realized that one of the most important learnings I've had since I started is that essentially you're always making a bet on a person or a sponsor. And in my opinion, that's the number one thing you want to look for. The number two thing is the actual property. And so the really quick example I like to give is like, you know, I live in Los Angeles, just south of Beverly Hills. I like to say that, you know, if you invested in the best building that was 100% occupied on Rodeo Drive, one of I think our probably most famous street in the city, in the best location on Rodeo Drive, but the manager then like ran it to the ground, tenants leave, And you're giving the keys back to the bank and it's foreclosed. So it didn't matter that it was the best property in the best location. What mattered is who you made the bet on to actually manage it. And so, you know, vetting a sponsor and understanding who you're dealing with, in my opinion, is the single most important thing when you're looking at opportunity. The property is extremely important as well, but I consider it in second place, even though it's almost as important to the sponsor themselves. What I would say is that, um, and I don't know how much detail you want me to get into right now, but in a nutshell, if I had to summarize it, what I typically look for is I try to find someone who seems trustworthy, who is looking to under-promise and over-deliver for investors to build long-term relationships with investors You know, via, let's say, conservative assumptions and a conservative view on everything that they're presenting to investors, instead of someone who is over-promising, making the numbers look really good and trying to attract investors by the numbers, which it does happen. I see it all the time. And they don't really care if they build a longer uh, you know, term relationship with those investors. They just want to get investors and they'll kind of move on to the next if they need to. That's the quickest summary I can give you to my general philosophy on vetting a sponsor. It is clearly, we could talk for hours about it, but that's certainly the good starting point.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, I really, I've seen that in my own experience as a passive investor, You know, kind of what you said that You know, a bad sponsor can make a great deal bad and a good sponsor should be able to run any decent deal. But a good sponsor is also going to be conservative and obviously trustworthy and all these other great things. And, uh, you know, personally, I have the first investment I made passively in a syndication. One of the sponsors was not trustworthy and, uh, took a little extra money from us. So that was a rough learning experience. We still made money on it, but it very much could have gone wrong. We certainly, you know, if you've ever read a PPM to the listeners out there, basically a hundred pages of here, are all the ways you're definitely going to lose your money. So we definitely could have lost our money and we didn't, but vetting the sponsors a little bit better could have shown, could have protected us a little bit. And uh just for the listeners out there. You know, when I saw you speak and talk about this, I think it was a maybe a half hour, 45 minute presentation. I mean, you've clearly got a very defined and detailed system. You were the best speaker at that conference, for sure. I'll speak for the other attendees. And from what I can tell, you get very detailed. I think you said, hey, let's get into some of those weeds about how you look into the sponsors. I mean, I remember you saying about, I think, background checks and even further, you know, how do we get started? vetting those sponsors like the professionals?
0: Yeah. So background checks is definitely one thing I want to put out there immediately, because honestly, I talk to literally hundreds of investors every year and and maybe even thousands. And one of the most common denominators I find is that a lot of investors, the majority of past investors do not do background checks. And they've actually saved me several times over the course of 17 years. I don't know how many, but certainly probably more than five. And background checks are just really, really critical. I don't really know that much about a lot of the online services. I use something called TLO, which is actually owned by TransUnion. Uh, There's another really well-known one called Accurant, which is owned by LexisNexis. Those are the types of databases that private investigators use. In fact, the police use TLO when they're looking at a suspect. That's their first step. And a couple of police officers I know, I've asked that question. And... So they're hard to get access to those databases. If you cannot get access to those, and I can kind of give you a little more detail about what the requirements are and stuff, then you can always hire a private investigator to run the check for you. And granted, it will be more expensive, but you'll be getting, hopefully, if you have an experienced private investigator, that can actually give you some really good insight and probably much more insight than I would have reading it. But that's number one is always do background checks. I'm glad you actually touched upon that because that is very, very lacking in my opinion. Another thing I want to point out too, and you know, you're asking about the, kind of the tricks and the, the actual details of what I get into. So when I run a background check, what I do is I always run background checks on all of the managing members within the manager LLC, and I always basically say to the each manager, I say, "Look, I'm going to run a background check. I need your name, address, and date of birth." and is there anything I should know before I run the background check that you just want to let me know of? Maybe there's a good explanation for something like that. So, two very important pieces to that. Okay, number one is the reason why I ask for the name, date of birth, and home address is it's a bit of a test. So, you know, I don't ask for social or anything like that. But if somebody's concerned about giving me their date of birth or their home address, that's already kind of throwing up a yellow flag. I've got to look into. Like, I need to better understand why. For example. Um, because it's really rare that somebody pushes back on that. Another thing, too, is that the reality is that unless someone has like a name like you know Stephen Smith, a very common name, I can actually run a background check on someone just with their name and probably match up who they are, just knowing their email address and their phone number. So I actually ask for the, those pieces of information mostly as a test. It's also to 100% match up that I have the right person to make sure I'm really analyzing the right person. But that's one test that I do on the sponsor right there. And the other thing that I was mentioning I do is asking if they actually have anything they want to tell me. And, you know, that's another test where, and actually I'm also giving someone the benefit of the doubt, which I think is fair, because what I have found over the years is that sometimes something weird comes up on a background check and you don't have all the details to understand exactly what it was. It could have been a police stop. It could have been a minor arrest or whatever it is. And if the person gives you the upfront look, you know, 15 years ago, I was transporting, you know, my gun in my trunk, but I didn't realize that like, I wasn't allowed to leave it in my trunk, but it was my gun. And so that's what that is. You know, that seems to be, you know, assuming they're licensed for the gun, that seems to be a reasonable explanation. Right. But often or not often, but sometimes somebody will not say anything to me. And then I start finding stuff because maybe they're thinking it's going to come up with like five or 10 years of information, but it goes very far back. And so that's another test to see if they're just being completely transparent with you. And I find that someone who's going to take the time to explain something up front and warn you of something, you know, that starts to kind of like break down the barrier. Okay, maybe I can start to trust this person. So those are a couple of tests I do even within the background check. So it goes beyond just doing a background check. There are certain things you can do, to like test them. And I, you're going to find on this podcast that one of the common themes that I'm probably going to tell you is that I do a lot of testing. And I'm talking about reading between the lines, asking them questions, not necessarily because I care about the answer as much as how they're answering it other things, to really understand who is it that I'm dealing with.
1: Okay. So you're first starting with vetting the team. You know, Is there anything else before we move on to talking about the opportunity? Is there anything else related specifically to vetting the team members that you want to bring up?
0: So let me give you a high level about how I actually go about asking some questions before we get into the actual opportunity. So what I'll do is I'll review uh, the documents. I'll create a very long list of questions, probably send some of the questions via email first, see what their answers are. Then I'll schedule a call. And the point of scheduling a call is to get more details on some of the questions that maybe weren't fully answered, et cetera, or maybe I want more detail about certain things. But the other point of the scheduling the call is that I want to hear how people are responding to me. So let me give you an example. Let's say I ask somebody, why they used a two percent inflation assumption on rent increases for a multifamily deal because that seems a little low to me, if their answer to me is, well, we use two percent, even though we think it's going to be three percent, we use two percent to be conservative, so we think that we might do better than that, but we don't want to like give investors the wrong impression about what the returns might be, okay that is great. That's like the under promise over-deliver that I am looking for. You're probably only going to hear that on a phone conversation, right, in terms of how they say it and what they're saying to you, and so By the way, I I can give you the the opposite example, which is, you know, I asked somebody, why do you have rent increases of 6% in year one, 6% in year two, and then 3% thereafter, when you have like expense inflation increasing at 2% per year, right? And their answer may be, well, we're in a really hot market. Um, We think we're going to be able to get rents up for the first couple of years. And then the market's really strong. So we should be able to beat expense inflation. So, you know, to me, that is not conservative. It may be may be realistic in the end. They may actually achieve their goal, but they're not setting themselves up to underpromise and over-deliver. If anything, they're kind of setting themselves up that if it doesn't happen the way they think, they're going to overpromise and underdeliver. And so it's those types of things that I try to ask over the phone to see, it, you know, the answer is almost like less important as to like how they're answering in some cases. And so I do all those types of tests when I'm asking some questions via phone, but I always start with. Questions by email because they're they're more um, efficient, and you're not going to waste your time on a phone call. In addition to actually putting a bunch of questions together, if the answers are good, then I'll schedule a phone call and then dig into it further. Another great reason why you want to schedule a phone call is just the basic question of how did you find this opportunity and why do you like it. You would be amazed at what you can find out just with that question. Right? There could be a really interesting story behind it. It could be they were pursuing the seller for four years and you know, they were an older seller and they were just waiting for it to come around, there could be a thousand things to answer, but you're going to get some insight most of the time that's not included in the documents that could be very valuable either way, you know, pro or con. So those are some examples of what I do in, you know, how I actually bet the managers directly before getting into the actual opportunity itself, just in terms of us talking about how to bet an opportunity. So.
1: Sure. Is there any, just to back up real quick and, and make sure we're covering the ground here? If someone does make a fairly objectively conservative assumption, like the example you gave of two percent inflation annually and or rent growth annually after the property stabilized, and really, yeah, we might be able to get three, but we're being two to be conservative. If that's the assumption they made in their response to your question, is it possible they could actually give you a bad answer, even though they made a, a conservative assumption?
0: If that question makes sense. Okay, so if you're saying that they're saying they're being conservative right? So I think I have a good example of what you're talking about, I think. Okay. Let's say you buy a property and it's 20% below market rents, okay? And someone is planning on bringing it to market rents in year two, okay? So the first year, but their argument is that they're being conservative because maybe let's say they're going to go 5% below market rents. That's their being conservative, right? So you know they say, look, we're going to increase Rents fifteen percent because we're going to turn a lot of the property. We're going to bring it to market rent right away in year one, and then you know it's showing in year two. So they may be thinking they're conservative because they're not going all the way to hit market rents. But the reality is that, especially depending on type of property, it is like mobile home parks are a great example. You could be eighty dollars a month below lot rent, but let me tell you, like I actually I have a great example. I know somebody, no names. Who bought a property rents for $295 a lot, and they said we're gonna raise them to market rents, and they basically raise it to $420 a lot within a few months after buying it. Okay. Now, in mobile home park land, for those of you who are not familiar, it is at least three to five thousand dollars to actually pick up and move the home that you own on that property. And that is not affordable for a lot of those tenants. So if someone's being presented with a rent increase from 290 to 425. Literally, their hands are tied because either they walk away and leave their property because they can't afford to move it, or they pay this crazy exorbitant rent increase. So what happened? Literally, the residents called the media, you know, brought them in, showed them what happened. Media started to make a stink. And then, I'm not even exaggerating, the state got involved and literally passed rent control laws because of this one incident on this one property across the entire state right because wow. the residents got so upset that they brought the media in and it got the politicians attention and they got involved but here's the thing if their argument would have been <laughs> that they're bringing rents up from like 295 to 385 because market's at 425 that's them saying oh we're being conservative we're leading 40 dollars on the table we're going to be you know we're going to be 10% below market rents right in year 2 but my argument is that well that may look conservative on paper but in actual execution that is a huge, huge, like kind of how to run a mobile pump park 101 error, okay? That you're taught when you're learning how to buy these things. And so I got I don't know if I answered the question well, but they may position it as being conservative, but that's still not okay. Is that what you meant?
1: Not exactly. I think if you objectively thought, say going back to your example of an assumption is objectively conservative, we'll just take that as a given. Like you agree that it's objectively conservative, and you've asked the sponsor. Just justify this assumption a little bit. And they give a bad answer, even though it is conservative. You know what I mean? So if if you're testing them about what their answer is going to be, and if their answer is, I suppose maybe the only only thing is if they pulled that 2% out of thin air, and even though it looks conservative to an expert in the field, they're just kind of happening to get lucky with a conservative assumption, I guess is
0: if. Yeah, so great point. So I guess your point is that if their answer to me is we just use two percent across all our deals, period. Yeah, there you go. That's really not a good reason, right? And it's actually not what you think you're gonna hear. And what's so interesting is that you can read the documents, look at the two percent and say, Oh, these guys are really conservative. That's a really good sign, right? But then hearing that answer, you're like, you know what, they're not conservative. They haven't even thought about that number, let alone, you know, so it's not even purposeful. That's that's almost worse, right? Because they actually haven't thought about the number. So to your point, this is actually why having a conversation and asking some of these questions is really critical rather than just reading the documents.
1: Absolutely. Okay, so now if we're getting into vetting the actual deal, I mean, we've already started touching on it uh, on a few of these examples, maybe asking these about these assumptions and everything. You know, it's no secret that right now we're in a tighter market than it has been in the past as far as finding true value-add opportunities out there. and as I have, I'm sure you've seen a few pro formas from syndicators that were just like, I think you're really being too optimistic here. You know, once you're getting into the opportunities, are you bringing your own expertise to the table? Are you becoming a market expert on each of the geographic markets that you invest in? You know, so talking opportunity specific, you know, how do you get into what do you get into there?
0: Yeah. Really great question. So the way that I treat uh vetting an operator is it's almost like not trust but verify but so you know I depend on the sponsor to actually do the vetting in the market and to decide if it's a good market. Okay. If I don't know the market at all and never been in it before, the first thing I'll do is I'll ask them why they like the market and hear, you know, via phone what they think about the market, why they like it. Sometimes it'll be great answers, you know. Population increase this much, this much, this year uh economy is building up. We talk to the Chamber of Commerce. We like what you see. Or even like we've been in this market before. We understand it. You know, here's why we like it. It's been growing for a long time, blah, blah, blah. Right. But what I always do is ask the questions as to why they like the market and understand that better. I almost always fly to a property and walk it before I move forward with a sponsor. And I always ask their take on the market at that point. In fact, I usually have them drive me around. Forget being at the property. You want to drive around the surrounding area and understand why they like the location and what they saw around the area. And that's also really telling because if they can give you a really good one hour tour of the surrounding area and they start pointing all the stuff out to you, man, you know, they've really thought about this market, right? Whereas if the answer is, you know, here's this retail strip center, we're on the corner of main and main, and there's X amount of traffic count. That's all very important for retail, for example. But, you know, if they can't tell you that, There's limited retail supply. There's no more building. Here, let me show you where the next trip center is and like kind of what's been going on lately. Here's our competition. By the way, here's all the residential that surrounds us. There's a limited amount of, you know nobody can build any more of this type because of zoning. All these other things are taking you on this tour. You really start to get some insight as to whether they're doing their job. So that's that's number one. Now, if it appears as though they've done their job, what I'll do for a specific market to really be 100% comfortable is I'll start uh, pulling data of, how has the growth really been? It's almost like a trust but verify at that point. Is the growth really what they say? Who are the biggest employers? You know, is it dependent on one employer or many? What's the population trends over the past 10, 20 years? And what is the population growth forecast going forward? What's the unemployment rate compared to the national average? You can find a lot of these things very, very easily and very quickly online. And so in the end of the day, I like to kind of bet that they've done a lot of research, but then in the end, it's like a trust but verify type of thing. And I, you know. To me, all the aspects, I'm not an expert in running any of these individual types of properties, even though I'm invested across many asset classes and over 70 deals. So I'm never going to be able to assess a property and a market as well as a sponsor who's really experienced, in my opinion. So you're trusting them to do that work and then you're verifying they've done it correctly and that you know they really know their stuff.
1: Hmm. Very interesting. So I wanted to, to pivot, let's say, if we're... Talking to somebody out there who has not started passively investing or they're, they're thinking about it. Maybe they've got some stock holdings and there's been a lot of noise in the markets lately. I certainly don't blame anyone for wanting to pull their money out of the stock market. I know I have, you know, getting started. What in your opinion and just giving your opinion, what makes sense? What's the right profile for someone? getting started as a passive investor in syndicated real estate deals, all the way from, you know, do you only think only accredited investors should get involved? Do you think you should have a minimum, you know, liquidity of a couple hundred thousand dollars? I mean, just some of your opinions around the profile of an ideal passive investor to head down this path.
0: Yeah. So just first thing I'll say is I'm not an investment advisor or a financial advisor. So anything I'm sharing, just my perspective as an investor here, a few important thoughts, I think that come to my mind. And I also want to just give the caveat that my personal focus is very low risk. I focus on 80, percent occupied, stabilized properties that may or may not have any value at upside. So the reason why I got into all this 17 years ago is was for more predictability. So I look for more predictable cash flow. And when I say more predictability, I mean, compared to the stock market, for example. So my mindset is all about predictability and lower risk. So with that in mind, in terms of how I'm answering, if someone's looking for a similar profile to that, because that's what I understand, first thing I'll say is um, if someone's older and they're retired or looking to retire, it's very important to understand that there's a lack of liquidity in these types of opportunities. Now, a lot of people don't realize that it's actually against the law to sell your shares in a syndication, I believe, for the first 12 months. That's an SEC law. You are not allowed to flip your shares. and so. That alone can be an issue, whereas if you have a family emergency and you don't have enough savings, for example, and something comes up three months later, that's a big problem. Even if the operator is willing to buy your shares back at par, you're actually breaking the law by selling them, theoretically, right? I'm not saying that, you know, so that's one important thing to consider. Another thing is, you know, from a cash flow perspective, when you're investing in these opportunities, typically I'm investing for a five or 10 year period, even more commonly 10 years, I'm looking for as predictable as cash flow as possible. My mentality going into these is because of the lack of liquidity, they're very hard to sell and they can't be sold for the first year. You have to be very comfortable with the idea that your money is going to be locked up for a long time. If you don't have that certainty, you don't have enough savings to be able to do that with whatever amount you're considering investing, I would not recommend considering it at all. It's just not realistic to wake up on the third year of an opportunity and say, I need to sell my shares. I want to sell my shares. It's very difficult. It could be a multi-month process. It may not be achievable at all because in the end of the day, the onus will be on you to find someone to buy them. And even if you find someone to buy them, the challenge is that you know, you're know you not going to pay for an appraisal for several thousand dollars on a commercial property probably. So what it's really worth is anyone's best guess. You have to negotiate that. Often you're going to sell it at a discount because people are buying your shares with the uncertainty of even knowing what it's worth. So there's a lot of disadvantages to selling your shares. So don't put yourself in a position where you cannot be locked in for a long time with that money. So that's definitely one thing that comes to mind. And I would say that's why I was referring to people who are retired or looking to retire. If you need access to your cash, just make sure you have enough backup cash. I mean, predictable cash flow is probably very appealing to a lot of retired people, but don't get into that position unless you know you have that backup cash. Number two is that when you're passive, I like to tell people that I consider myself someone who trades control for diversification. And that, by the way, is to me, like, is the difference between me being active and passive is really control in exchange for diversification. And so when you think about it that way, you're going to be a small piece of a bigger deal, you're going to have a vote in certain important issues. But that vote is going to be so small, most likely in terms of you being a very small piece of the deal, that it's not very meaningful, right, you're not going to have control. and so you got to be comfortable being passive and be willing to make a bet on other people. I have conversations with people all the time who are more active investors or active mindset, or just like to have control. Nothing wrong with that, but just not the right fit for them, right? And so that's something definitely to consider as far as whether it's the right personality. another, Another thing I would say is that if you're uncertain as to whether passive is the right thing for you, I would strongly recommend you take enough time to sort it out upfront. Because what I like to tell people is that let's say you're more of an active mindset and then you put your toe in the water and you go into one, two, three, four passive opportunities. What I would say is that if you did decide after the third opportunity, this is not the right thing for you, you want to be more active. Now you've got a problem, two problems. One is that you've only invested in three opportunities and you have not gone for the control, you traded control for diversification. You haven't achieved the diversification. Well, the problem with that is that now you've got more risk across very few operators because you haven't diversified. Across operators, geographies, and asset classes That's the three things I look to diversify across. You're not diversifying enough, and now your, your risk is increased on that perspective. And then furthermore, it's very hard to sell your shares like we talked about. So you can't kind of like turn around and backtrack on that path and go back to the active path. So you've got to be very careful and make sure that the passive piece is the right fit for you before you start going down the path. Um, that's another very important thing. Um, I will address that, you know, as far as how much money to have. Well, first of all, that depends on how much of your portfolio you want to allocate towards you know, these passive opportunities. That's going to be different for everybody as far as comfort level. I am personally 100% allocated to passive. That I, I, I literally have zero ownership in stocks. Ironically, the one ownership I have in stocks is with a friend of mine who runs a fund that's shorting the stock market to try to benefit from downturn. But the irony about that is not just a short part. It's actually the fact that I don't even have control because that's a passive investment in a fund. So it's not even technically directly in stocks. So that's a question of how much you want to allocate. I would recommend going very slowly, take a lot of time to learn before you actually dip your toe. And also I consider it a very dangerous time to invest right now. You know, asset prices are very high. I am sitting mostly on the sidelines, not fully, but mostly. And you don't want to start at the wrong timing. A funny thing about real estate is that, you know, if you invested in a deal in 2010, if it was even mismanaged to a degree and you sell it in 2017, you probably were okay. Right. As long as it wasn't a total disaster. Well, if you invested in an opportunity that was really well managed, but you invested in in 2007, it could have been a total disaster, right? Just because of the timing. So just understand whoever's listening that the timing right now is very, very challenging. Looks like we're right at peak pricing. And, you know, you may want to wait until there's a downturn or at least a year or two for to learn more before you really decide, educate yourself enough to decide that the pricing makes sense. So I think those are all important things. I didn't really directly answer your question about how much money to have, but it's it's you know you can find minimum investments starting at about twenty five thousand fifty is probably the most common easy point to find. So if you can't get diversified, in my opinion, across ten to twenty and preferably twenty or more opportunities in twenty five thousand dollars chunks, I'm not sure this is necessarily the right fit for you to go down. So that's a bit more of a specific answer.
1: Okay, great, I like that. And you know, when I first got started as a passive investor, I realized that. Mental barrier for me would be a little bit lower if I used capital that, Hey, I'm not going to be able to touch for a while anyway. So I made the decision for me personally to start investing out of my uh, self-directed IRA because I've got a while till I can touch that money. It's patient. I'm, you know, it's going to be locked up anyway, no matter where I put it. So I might as well invest it in this asset class that I'm interested in. But, um, you know, I, I definitely agree that being. Quote, married to a syndicator or a team for a long amount of time can be daunting. I mean, I've passed on opportunities with really awesome teams who I fully believe in uh, and I believe in the opportunities, but the time horizon was 10 years and 10 years just doesn't fit with what I'm looking for right now. So, you know, I passed on quality opportunities that I'm confident are going to make money just because I wasn't comfortable with the time horizon so that's just my own experience there yeah
0: i just want to point out it's an interesting point here that you know you're not comfortable with 10 years i actually am only comfortable with 7 or 10 years right now and by the way neither of us is wrong that's kind of the point right so if you're just starting it's important to learn enough to know what all these parameters should be for yourself before you go in and make a mistake so the learning process is very important and also don't just copy what other people are doing you got to learn it well enough to understand what is optimal for you, and then go and pursue that strategy.
1: Jeremy, what is the best investment you've ever made?
0: Now, do you mean real estate investment or overall like ROI investment?
1: That is your call.
0: Okay. Well, man, I have a few. So um, the best overall return on an investment I've ever made, which I call a lottery ticket, I invested, in, very rare for me. I've probably only invested in 10 startups here in the last 10 years, but it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. When I'm looking at a startup, it's all about who's running it. I'm always, if I have to just make a bet on a person I know has been very successful, I go for it. And I invested in a, in a startup and I basically bought shares at about 26 cents a share in the seed round. Current price, as of a couple of years ago, is about $13 and 33 cents. I've run the numbers on it and it was like, it just almost didn't make sense. You know, like in terms of like the percentage ROI, it was something like 10 or 30% a month for years. I don't even know. So and by the way, so the time frame I've had so far to get to that point, actually, the shares got to that point in about two to three years, just to give you an idea. So yeah, wow. and again, there's very liquid, I've sold a little bit of it, but I've got. I'm kind of in for the long, long run, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, you've got all that, that kind of thing. But it was pretty amazing situation. So that's kind of the best return I've ever had. The most consistent cash flow, best return I've ever had is some atm machines that i've invested in that over 10 years and they're still going have averaged about 35 percent you know not exactly but roughly uh per year uh i get monthly checks so that's been really good and then the best commercial real estate deal i've invested in was and when i say best i mean just from like a quick return which was completely unexpected i invested in a two-story office building just mostly dentists and doctors in calgary canada Back in 2005, we bought it for $5.5 million. Frankly, just bought it for cash flow, you know, 10%, 11%, 12%, whatever it was at the time. And uh, we got an offer for it unsolicited. Uh, it was either one or two years later for about $12 million. We hadn't even started the value. add; We basically put no extra money in the building. And, you know, for some, that's probably like an average deal if they do a lot of value add. But for me, it was just stabilized. That was a very unique situation as far as uh, unexpected ROI. Uh, By the way, I've invested in so many deals, I can get into a whole bunch of other examples too, but um, those are the ones that stand out.
1: (laughs) All right. We'll save the rest of those for next time. I'm sure you've got a lot of awesome stories. On the other side of that, what is the worst investment you've ever made?
0: Worst investment I've ever made? Well, I've invested in some startups that have basically gone nowhere and gone to zero and were a complete write-off. But those were back in the 2006, 7, 8 timeframe. Really bad timing in combination with me... Not focusing on the right thing, which is not focusing on the people, focusing on the idea. I used to get caught up like a lot of people and, oh, this is a great idea. I got to invest in this idea. I've learned the hard way that it's all about the people because, you know, a lot of times startups, you'll pivot. Yes, founders will have a good idea, but then they'll have to pivot because it won't be quite as well received as they thought or the market may change. And then all of a sudden, that good idea at the beginning didn't matter because that's not actually what makes sense for the market today. What matters much more is how they handle and how they pivot as operator or as the founders. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've invested in, in a couple, probably two. Well, actually, it's probably only been one or two that did that, but still really good lesson on that. From a real estate perspective, worse investment. Um, I have a long story of one which was thought would look to be was going bad, but turned out to be okay because of the sponsor. But I know we don't have time for that. I invested in a, I mean, to be totally honest with you, I think the worst real estate investment I've had has lost about 5%. I have not been, like I was in one foreclosure, but that foreclosure, the sponsor transferred everybody to another deal because it was such a weird, unique circumstance. like a 1% risk that um, they actually did that for the investors. So it would have been a foreclosure, but the sponsor saved us and it was such a weird situation.
1: Well, hey, you know, Things go wrong sometimes. 5% loss isn't bad. I know I've lost on a percentage basis more than that on a, a couple of stocks, even in an up market. So, uh, you know, 5% ain't bad, especially if it's only uh, once in a few deals.
0: I just want to be clear about sure. one thing, sorry to interrupt you that, you know, I really am very low risk. We were talking about this before we started the podcast. And so the fact that I haven't had like a 50 or 100% loss in a real estate deal. Really it doesn't mean that I'm an amazing investor. It's more that I invest a certain risk profile with like could be a hundred percent occupied building and to get it to go to like foreclosure from that point would just take such an immense amount of crazy things to happen that it also has to do with the profile of the deal I'm investing in, not necessarily because I'm the best deal picker ever in the world, right? I just want to point that out to everybody.
1: Absolutely. Just going for base hits and there's yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. Cause then you uh yeah. keep making them, you keep playing. So And I think you've probably already given the answer to this next question, but it's my favorite one. What is the most important lesson you've
0: learned? Yeah, when you're passive and you're right, I did give the answer. It's all about who you're making a bet on. I cannot stress that more. And yeah, I know we've talked about it here, so I won't get into it again, but it's just by far the, and I see it happen all the time. People look at the deal. They think it looks good. The returns look really good. You know, numbers are big. But um, they're not taking enough time to take a look and, and really evaluate the sponsor. And that's really, really key. Awesome.
1: So, Jeremy, what is the best way for folks to get in touch with you?
0: The best way to reach me is definitely through email. So my email address is jroll, J-R-O-L-L, at roll investments R-O-L-L, investments with an S, so it's plural, dot com. So jroll at rollinvestments.com is definitely the uh, best way to reach me. Awesome.
1: And and I really appreciate it today. I was really looking forward to our conversation and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing you speak in a couple months again. That's going to be great. And, and to all the listeners out there, if you ever get a chance to meet Jeremy or hear him speak or shoot, send him an email here after you stop listening to the show, it's totally worth your time. Awesome presentation. Even it, it, whether you're on the passive investing side or the syndication side, you know he's got just a such a wealth of knowledge. There's a lot that you can learn, and he's super nice. So he's more than uh, seemingly more than happy to share his knowledge. So certainly, thank you for joining us today, Jeremy.
0: Yes, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for those kind of words. And honestly, I am happy to help anyone any way that I can. So uh, especially if you're new, or even if you're experienced, I'm happy to network. If you're new, if you have some questions about how this works, I'm happy to help. I'm on the phone with a lot of new people or just whoever all the time. So. Don't hesitate to reach out to me. And and thanks very much for having me on the show today. Really appreciate it.
1: Hey, it's my pleasure. To all the listeners out there, I hope you learned something today. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes and a comment. That's a big help. If you know anyone that would benefit from the lessons that we bring on the show, send them a link. I invite them, bring them into our our little squad here that we're forming and uh, hopefully we can help them learn something too and grow their wealth. For now, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I hope you have an awesome week and we'll talk to you on the next one.